Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at indivisibleradio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag indivisibleradio or leave us a voicemail at indivisibleradio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. And from WNYC in New York, I'm Brian Lehrer, your Tuesday host for Indivisible, our national call-in show for President Donald Trump's first 100 days. Today is day 82, and we have a pretty special hour for you, I think. Our Monday and Wednesday Indivisible hosts, Kai Wright and Charlie Sykes, come from pretty different places, personally, ethnically, and politically. And earlier today, they sat down together for a StoryCorps interview. That is, they interviewed each other, both about their politics and about their lives as part of Public Radio's StoryCorps project. It was amazing. And we will play some excerpts from that conversation this hour. Talk to Kai Wright and Charlie Sykes live, along with David Isay from StoryCorps, and some of you on the phones to reflect on what you're hearing, and we'll tell you how you can have a StoryCorps experience of your own with someone politically different from you, as we try to keep doing what we do here on Indivisible, to reach out of our bubbles and past our stereotypes in this very polarized era. Now, much of Kai and Charlie's dialogue, as you will hear later, had to do with race. Kai is black and Charlie is white as a starting point. And if you think about it, a new civil rights era seemed to be rising in the last few years before the 2016 election. Then Donald Trump was elected president and the national focus changed from forgotten black Americans to forgotten white Americans. The forgotten men and women of our country will be forgotten no longer. So that was Trump in his inaugural address, one version of the forgotten men and women reference he's made many times. And he didn't say forgotten white people, but we know who felt like they were being forgotten no longer with Donald Trump elected president and when he said that. And we know who felt not just forgotten anew, but threatened. And even after the Access Hollywood video, most white women voted for Trump, and so many women of color felt betrayed. Trump's refrain to black America? It is a disaster the way African Americans are living in many cases, and in many cases the way Hispanics are living. And I say it with such a deep-felt feeling. What do you have to lose? Well, black America may be finding out week by week. One key point person in this is Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Recently, Sessions announced he would review recent Justice Department oversight agreements with Baltimore and Ferguson and other police departments, agreements that are intended to guard against racially discriminatory policing. Those agreements worked out under Obama could be canceled under Trump and Sessions. Sessions is raising the issue, and he stopped Congress from passing a sentencing reform bill that had bipartisan support. Jeff Sessions wants to return to an old-fashioned drug war and the era of mass incarceration. And it's not me saying that. Here's 30 seconds of Sessions' top deputy for public safety, Stephen Cook, 
in plain English last month. What we did beginning in 1985 or along in there is put these laws to work. And what we did by putting them to work is we started filling the federal prisons, not state prisons, federal prisons, with the worst of the worst. And what happened is exactly what Congress said they wanted to happen, and that is violent crime began in 1991, began to turn around. By 2014, we'd cut it in half. That's what the system is doing, and it's designed to do, and it's working exactly as it is. Attorney General Jeff Sessions' deputy, Stephen Cook, from a Washington Post video. Now, we could debate specific drug laws, good or bad, police oversight, good or bad, but what's clear is that one set of norms regarding race and justice seemed to be taking hold in the United States the last few years. Trump's election has radically altered that direction and flipped the politics on its head of who is considered the forgotten American. Can't we remember all Americans at the same time? With me now to talk about this and take your calls is Fordham University political science professor Christina Greer, author of the book Black Ethnics, Race, Immigration, and the Pursuit of the American Dream. Christina, thanks so much for doing this. Welcome to Indivisible. Thank you, Brian. And let's invite black callers first tonight. If you identify as black, where did you think the country was headed in the era of Barack Obama and Black Lives Matter? And where do you think it's headed now in terms of racial justice? If you identify as black, where did you think the country was headed and where do you think it's headed now in terms of racial justice? Call us at 844-745-TALK. Did you think we were entering into a new civil rights era after the series of high-profile police killings like in Ferguson and Baltimore and New York City and too many others and the response to those with Black Lives Matter and campaigns against inequality generally, and for incarceration reform, something was happening. Do you think it was a new civil rights era? Do you think it is a new civil rights era in spite of or because of Donald Trump? And have you learned something from the intensity of some of the Trump supporters, maybe the coal miners, maybe the steel workers, maybe the unemployed, non-college educated white people in general who've become such a focus of politics and the media, not to stereotype them? But can you and them be not forgotten at the same time? If you identify as black, you get our first call in tonight on Indivisible, 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255, 844-745-TALK. Christina, looking back first, before Mm -hmm. the election, did you think we were entering a new civil rights era in the period, maybe since Trayvon Martin was killed, maybe that's the, the touchstone, the starting point? Was there something happening that maybe hadn't been happening in several decades? I thought we were making some progress in the sense that Eric Holder and Loretta Lynch were doing some real institutional and systemic work uh, in the DOJ. And I thought that that was actually, you know, sort of making sure that they had some oversights on police stations that had, or police departments that had been particularly egregious, and really trying to change the culture and the institution of how black citizens are treated. On the other hand, you know, you have someone like Barack Obama, where the second he's elected, everyone says we're post-racial which is, to me, like nails on a chalkboard. That's absolutely impossible. You can't erase 400 years of 
white supremacy and anti-black racism, patriarchy, you name it, the list goes on capitalism and human chattel in, in the form of, you know, human bondage and the election of one man. And it's like, oh, great. So that's that's all been forgotten. And let's just move forward. So I knew that there would be a backlash. You know, the pendulum always has to swing with this country. I just I think it's it's taken a lot of folks back just a moment. We have to catch our breath the extent to which the backlash has been so swift, um, you know, to go from a black president who had to be perfect. I mean, like, let's be clear. One of the biggest scandals of eight years are the Salahis, you know, breaking into the White House. You know, and that's not even Barack like, Obama. Like nothing. In nothing. You know, another huge scandal, Barack Obama wearing a tan suit or mm-hmm. seeing his toes at the beach. I mean, these are the types. This is honestly like the level of scandal that we've had and and to go from someone like that who had to be he and his wife and his children had to be perfect to this um is is in many ways just right. a slap in the face so that's comparing mm-hmm. to, uh, acceptable standards of behavior on the part of the president what do you think the election has done to that budding new civil rights era to the extent that it was i mean there's certainly a big protest movement a big resistance movement But it feels to me like it's not the push forward for progress that we might have been seeing the last few years. It's a push back against what Trump and Bannon and Sessions and whoever else might do. Right. And I think that's unfortunately the the – role of Democrats in a lot of ways, they constantly play defense and not offense, right? They react to sort of draconian policies. But I think, you know, there's a lot of frustration with so much of this protest, right? Because if you look at black women who remain the miners in the canary or the canaries in the mine, right? Um, And Jason Johnson wrote a great piece in The Root where he said, you know, black women are essentially kryptonite to Republicans and like white racist males, right? We are the one group who can't be co-opted. So there's so many protests and black women are essentially saying, for 18 months, we told you that this was possible. We told you that the, a Donald Trump could get elected. That's why you're supposed to be talking to your dad and your uncle and all these distant cousins who say they're going to vote for him. He is not the same as Hillary Clinton, right? These these two are not the lesser of two evils. And so I think that is is part of the, the frustration in the citizenry right now because, yes, now these protests and marches are a necessity. But they are in reaction to a reality that so many black Americans, black women in particular, were very clear was a possibility. Before we go to the phones, had you heard that Stephen Cook clip before or know that Jeff Sessions wants to restart the drug war pre-Obama style? Oh, indeed. I mean, Jeff Sessions, you know, you and I know this very well. If you're too racist for the Reagan 80s, you know, and, and you're too draconian in 1986, I mean... Who knows what you would think in 2017, especially with the war on drugs. He had failed, for people who don't know the history, he had failed to be confirmed by the U.S. Senate for a federal judgeship when Reagan tried to appoint him uh, because of questions about allegedly racist things that he had said and things in his record as a U.S. attorney. And Coretta Scott King, you know, wrote a letter against him, you know, just all the things in Alabama that he had done historically. And so, you know, you have someone who, you know, sees marijuana as the same as heroin and and crack cocaine. Um, This is a very deliberate uh, targeting uh, that he and his deputies will go for. It's a, it's also this moralistic standard. I do think that, you know, the factions in the Republican Party will push back because there's money to be made in the marijuana industry. Um, and so, and, and there's money to be made by actually decriminalizing a lot of uh, some of these prisons, as we've seen with the Koch and brothers and their liber- investment. Yes, and there's a libertarian wing yes. that also thinks that it 
will save taxpayers money if you're not unnecessarily spending a lot on right. prisons and incarceration. Let's take a phone call. It's Darian in Montgomery, Alabama. You're on Indivisible. Hello, Darian. Hey, hello, how are you? Good. Thanks so much for calling. What do you want to say? Uh, yes. Um, well, I think that things changed under Obama in the sense that it brought racism. It brought underlying racism out to the forefront. And Trump's uh, election is further evidence of it. It brought it to the mainstream, but I think, I think honestly, that uh, we're hearing the swan songs of racism because I don't think that Trump ever intended to win. And because he never intended to win, he doesn't know how far to go. Uh, I don't think that Trump himself is particularly racist, but he surrounded himself with people who uh, were extremely popular to racist. Um, and I, I don't I don't know if Trump's ever going to switch away from them or if uh, they'll collapse under their own weight. Uh, I'm, I'm from Alabama, in a state where uh, politics has gotten really ugly. Uh, like in the last nine months, we've lost the three heads of our of our state government. Uh, the governor just got impeached. Uh, That's right. He resigned last night before yeah, they well, yeah, quite impeached him over mm-hmm. using government resources to hide mm-hmm. an affair, allegedly. What What about your own impression of of Sessions? I mean. Had he, you know, people do change. So had he changed since he got rejected on racial grounds in 1986? In your opinion, Sessions, uh, I, I think he he's changed some. He, he's definitely changed some. Uh, I I fear that he may still harbor. Uh, uh, he may still harbor old old war wounds and he might still be like like a lot of well, a lot of his policies he's wanting to rehash the battles of the 90s mm-hmm. uh, he he may be stuck in time and he i don't think that he's particularly a bad person he's just wanting to live in 2017 fighting the wars of 1990 interesting way to put it yeah that's a great way to put it thank you very much let's go to Jamila in Somerville, Massachusetts. Hi, Jamila, you're on Indivisible. And it's Jamilia. Forgive me. Hi. No, no worries. I'm actually happy that I actually reached you guys. So I am a brown girl, which some like to call African-American, but I like to identify as brown. So before, when Obama was president, I definitely felt like we were unified, not I don't feel like Obama did anything directly to make that feeling happen. I think that just the way he carried himself and the things that he did definitely was leading the world into a more unified, happy place. I don't feel like he came in and was like, I'm going to be an advocate for black people or brown people, like I like to call us. And um, I feel like, yeah, he didn't do much advocating for it, but his actions definitely, definitely showed a strong brown man and it definitely unified us now since trump has became president i feel like we are definitely regressing and a lot of anger and tension is everywhere everywhere and it's um it's really hard to watch because i'm raising a brown girl myself and uh she questions everything about race now and she's only seven she'll be seven in june so it's 
it's definitely so a hard even time at age seven the things she's being exposed to mm-hmm. because of politics today you thinking you think is making her more suspicious of... no it definitely is definitely it definitely is she she said herself she says i'm gonna vote for hillary clifton she calls her hillary clifton <laughs> She said she's voting for Clifton because she wants to bring people together. And um, she's, my daughter says herself, she's only six, she thinks that Trump is trying to uh, break up everybody's friendship. And this is her own word. Jamelia, so. thank, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. It's so sad to hear that. Well, I think, you know, we've talked about this before, Brian. I mean, children were the ones who told us just how dangerous this president could be. You know, I mean, my four-year-old niece at the time, you know, said that he he would basically get kicked out of her her preschool, right? He points, he yells at people, he calls people names, he talks over people, and he's a bully, right? And so it's like you're not allowed to do that in the in the four group, right? <laughs> For the fours, and so this is these are young people who we're seeing, you know, not an Obama as as Jamelia said as a unifier, not just nationally but internationally, but someone who says like I really don't care about the rest of the world, and that's I only before. Care about America. That's before you even get to the politics. Right. Talking over people, exactly. looking like a bully. Mm-hmm. And stop, you know, I mean, we, we saw the second debate where he essentially hunted Hillary Clinton. I mean, you know, these are things that young children can see. Um, you know, I grew up where Reagan was my president as a child, and I think that that's part probably part of the reason why I am a political scientist, because there were certain things about him that were were definitely frightening, to be quite honest. Um, and you just, as in a child's mind, you know when things aren't right and aren't equitable and, and aren't moving forward. Sarah in Minneapolis, you're on Indivisible. Hi, Sarah. Hi, how are you guys? Um, so I just want to first start off, start off by saying I'm a millennial. So um, my experiences under um, Obama presidency was the first election that I could uh, that I could vote in. And I wanted to mention, um, you know, I don't think there's any, there was no one in the black community under his presidency that thought, you know, that was naive enough to assume that his presidency would suddenly alleviate and eliminate all of the racial problems and tensions that that we mm-hmm. all experience in, mm-hmm. the, in the country. Right. So, so, so take us to the, now, because we have 30 seconds before we have to go to a break. So tell us, Tell us about now. You feel like there was sort of yeah. a rising civil mo- rights movement before the election, Definitely. and now what? Yeah, yeah, and now, and now, I think um, I think a lot of white people now have um, come to, are a lot more comfortable. I will say now because they see Donald Trump as being an example of of the kind of behavior that um, where basically, if you see your authority figure. Um, having this kind of demeanor behavior, it almost makes it justifies for people, civilians, to have that same kind of behavior towards other civilians. So people see Do- Donald Trump as being an example that they can follow. So it allows a lot of racists who would have been quiet years ago can now have a little bit of a voice. It, it adds space to the voice of racists and, and those who hold prejudiced views. Sarah, so, thank you for lending your voice to this conversation. Indivisible continues in a minute. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. Carnegie Hall has welcomed a dizzying array of performers. To have Andy Kaufman, Frank Zappa, and Birkett Nielsen and Horowitz on the same stage... It becomes this kaleidoscope of our history. 
I'm Jessica Bosk. Join me for the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk. It's all about our unique cultural history, as witnessed by one of New York's most beloved institutions, Carnegie Hall. Listen now, wherever you get podcasts. This is Indivisible. The number to call is 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. And I'm Brian Lehrer from WNYC in New York. We're talking about norms of racial justice in the Donald Trump and Jeff Sessions era. <clears throat> Coming up, we will have a dialogue between two of our other indivisible hosts, one white, one black, but that's just one of the things that they'll talk about. Kai Wright and Charlie Sykes, that's going to be fascinating. But how much was there a new civil rights era in the years just before this election, before we get to Charlie and Kai? What's the state of it today? Any listener who identifies as black getting our first invitation on the phones tonight at 844-745-TALK. Still with us, Fordham University political science professor, Christina Greer, author of the book Black Ethnics, Race, Immigration, and the Pursuit of the American Dream. Did you hear it necessarily as racially coded when Trump said in the inaugural address and prior, forgotten man, forgotten woman? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that wasn't even a dog whistle. That was a, a dog bark, right? I mean, this is also a man, though, who's been trading in racist propaganda and racial tropes for not just 18 months of an election, but 30 years, you know, starting with, you know, just obviously the facts about him not renting to blacks, but also, you know, taking out a full page ad about the Central Park Five and, you know, calling for the electric chair. And then, you know, realistically, eight years of tormenting President Barack Obama um, and essentially saying, show me your papers. Mm. And then when Obama finally does, right, and who are you, Donald Trump, for the president of the United States to have to show his papers? But he still does. And Trump then says, I still don't believe it, right? It must right. have been forged because I can't be wrong. Until, so, until near the end of the campaign last he, year. And But that's still not even an apology, right? So when he says it's it's for us, I mean, let's be clear. You know, he might try and hide behind the veil of, oh, I'm not a racist. His wife might try and hide behind the veil of, oh, I'm not a racist. But let's be clear, for eight years, they definitely trafficked in those, those tropes. And so I, I think when he says, you know, when he's talking about – you know, forgot man, forgotten, forgotten man. woman. It's it's whites that have really felt like you know, if they have to share anything, it's a loss. So let's move it off Trump, back to them, those mm -hmm. people who are hearing it. The white working class narrative, and not to overgeneralize, like there's one white working class. Like I wouldn't want to generalize about any group, but in many people's own words, and as explained by scholars like Arlie Hochschild and J.D. Vance, who've written books, it's that many white, non-college-educated Americans who could have gotten good factory jobs in past generations have been forgotten by global trade agreements and forgotten by a progressive politics that seems to value every kind of identity group except theirs. Especially galling is that undocumented immigrants seem to be glorified and romanticized even as they are, quote, cutting the line, if you will, for hand up the economic ladder by the political establishment. So, yes, there's obviously white privilege in America, but perhaps many Trump voters, too, are forgotten in a way. Do you think that kind of white identity politics was caused to any degree by a lack of inclusion 
by the liberal establishment, if you want to call it that? Oh, I definitely agree with that. But, you know, that's also that's just one myopic view. You know, what about the black working class? They haven't had factories and cities for generations. Right. I mean, the only upward path to to anything. Exactly. I mean, think about good times for Pete's sake. Right. But like, you know, it's incarceration or unemployment in so many black communities. So, I mean, I think, you know, when when white working class are saying, oh, my my factory job is left. It's like, well, you actually had a job. Right. right? So do you think there's a politics kit that can unify various groups of forgotten Americans? In your opinion, does Trumpian economic nationalism necessarily become the same as white nationalism or can the economically excluded find a common way up? Well, I think this goes back to an interview that Jesse Jackson did in 1969 in Playboy where he essentially says this particular type of white working class individual will trade in their own economic, you know, future for a more solidified feeling of white supremacy, essentially, right? And so it's like, well, I have nothing else, but at least I have whiteness. It's like, well, you know what? You can't eat on whiteness when you're in that destitute situation. But Trump has promised them that they can, as long as they're not these quote-unquote criminals of the blacks, the Latinos, the undocumented, or as he calls them, illegals, right? Um, He's essentially promised these white Americans that as long as their whiteness maintains, that they will be okay with him and he'll find them jobs and bring back coal like it's 1952, which we all know is not happening. We all know that Donald Trump has never thought about anyone but Donald Trump. And he's actually never created businesses, right? So I don't know why they've put all of their eggs in this this basket and essentially, you know, a Titanic of leadership. Ken in Fayetteville, you're on Indivisible. Hi, Ken. Hey, how you doing? Glad to be on. Thanks Thank so you. much for calling. So do you think we were in a rising civil rights era? And if so, where are we today? Um, I really don't think the, uh, the civil rights movement really left. I think we're constantly on this, um, this, this journey for civil rights, for racial equality. It's just that the energy ebbs and flows depending on, I don't know, the decade or whatever. But I, I think it's, it's always been there, especially for black people. We're always on a civil rights movement. Um, and today, I think we saw with this election, um, you saw some pushback. You know, um, we struggle for racial equality. And, you know, you see some kind of pushback, whether it's been in the education system, in the legal system, in the law enforcement system, there's always going to be some pushback. And we saw this at the polls. We saw the pushback to, um, you know, struggle for racial equality. Ken, thank you so much. Let's go to Dara in Cincinnati. Hi, Dara. You're on Indivisible. Hi, how are you? My name is Dara. How are you doing? Forgive me, Dara. Hi, I'm doing okay. So were we in a rising civil rights movement? maybe since the death of Trayvon Martin, and if so, where are we now? I believe we were, and we were making progress under the Obama era through the Justice Department in their different, um, I forgot the term, but I guess consent degree, um, agreements with the police departments that now Jeff Sessions is going to reexamine. Um, we were making improvements in terms of closing down private federal prisons that now um, Trump a few weeks ago said we're not going to do that. Um, we're just making progress in general. I think there was just more respect 
being black under Obama, whereas now it's like, it's, it's just crazy. <laughs> well, I mean, I think, you know, when you have a president that refers to an entire group of people as the blacks, that also lets you right. know what he thinks about what this particular group. But I think going back to what Ken was saying, Brian, I mean, civil rights for so many black Americans is not um, a moment in time. It's it's literally been the, the quest since, you know, since we were brought here in so many ways. Right. And so it's maybe it, it was, you know, people took more of a break <laughs> to a certain extent, not mm-hmm. everyone, but some people did. Right. Um, but you recognize that the project is not complete. I mean, I think it's really interesting when you talk to grassroots, especially black social activist organizations, uh, many of them will tell you they had a strategy for Clinton the same way they had a strategy for Trump, you know, and they had a strategy for Obama. It's not like just because you have a Democrat or a person of color or a woman where the civil rights agenda is over, right? I mean, we to be constantly sure. have to fight. So how different do you think that agenda is? in our last 30 seconds before we go on to our next segment um, with Trump in the White House than if Clinton would have been elected. Oh, I, it's every, it's the world of difference because you have, look at the people he's put in his cabinet, right? Not only are they um, completely inept and inexperienced, but so many of them have backgrounds that, you know, some people would argue uh, they've trafficked in racist either language, um, interactions, you know, lawsuits, you name it. Um, this is also a man that, you know, actually does not want to put forward a progressive agenda of inclusion. And that goes as far as the diaspora, that goes for immigration, that goes for LGBT issues, much of which touches, you know, not just the black community, but all communities that aren't white, male, and upper class. Fordham University political science professor Christina Greer, certainly saying what she thinks, and author of the book, Black Ethnics, Race, Immigration, and the Pursuit of the American Dream. Thank you so much. Thank you. Now to our special project, Indivisible Meet StoryCorps. Usually, it's family members and other loved ones who do StoryCorps interviews together. But for the purpose of Indivisible, we're trying something different. We're inviting listeners, we're inviting you to sign up to talk to someone whose politics are different than yours. Last week, we told you for the first time about how to sign up to participate, and about 150 of you did. We'll tell you how again in a bit. But here's what we did to put some skin in the game ourselves. Two of our indivisible hosts, who have very different family stories and very different politics, recorded a StoryCorps conversation themselves this afternoon. Our Monday night indivisible host, Kai Wright, sat down with Wednesday night indivisible host, Charlie Sykes. Now, as you'll hear, both hosts are incredibly passionate about politics, but come to their beliefs in very different ways from very different places. By way of a little bit of background... Charlie Sykes hosted a conservative talk show for 23 years in Wisconsin before coming to Indivisible. Kai Wright has worked mostly with the progressive magazine The Nation in New York, doing work that he says focuses on racial justice, economic inequality, health care, and sexuality. He comes originally from Indianapolis. So here is a six-minute excerpt of their StoryCorps conversation. Charlie Sykes speaks first. I always describe myself as a recovering liberal because I actually grew up in a very liberal democratic family. My father was the chairman of the Wisconsin Civil Liberties Union. My first campaign was setting up um, the campaign headquarters for Eugene McCarthy, who was the anti-war candidate against Lyndon Johnson. When you said that you were raised by people from the ACLU, my eyebrows went up very quickly. I did not know that. At what point did you say, I don't think I believe what I believed yesterday? Part of it was... I became a newspaper reporter, and I covered urban issues. 
and started noticing that a lot of the programs from the Great Society were just failures. And one of the things that influenced me was the whole question of, are we actually supporting policies that are helping people or hurting people? For me, it was, this has rarely been an ideological question or a policy-driven question. My parents could not go to the bathroom in the same place as your parents could go to the bathroom. And that's only one generation ago. That's what shaped my worldview, was being raised by those kinds of people who had that kind of life experience. And I think that is a profoundly different starting point on politics than the idea of what's happening to other people. No, obviously. And I, and I think that you know, perhaps at one point Jews might have felt the same way. You know, my father actually was a World War II veteran, Jewish World War II veteran, fighting in World War II where Jews were being annihilated. May have shaped his liberalism at the time. It, it, well, very much so. But let me tell you, though, about one of the formative parts of my view that I think is very different than yours. For me, what Martin Luther King Jr. said about looking forward to a day when my children are judged not by the color of their skin but by the content of their character was one of the formative things for me the belief in the colorblind society, that at some point you move beyond that and you judge people by the content of their character. See, that's what, an, what, What's wrong with, that's with an, that? That's a great yeah. example yeah. that that's what you heard Martin Luther King say, because that's not at all what my parents heard Martin Luther King say or what I heard Martin Luther King okay. say. His message was justice, not colorblindness. Mm -hmm. not, Martin Luther King never said that we should not see race. He also said repeatedly that we had to undo the injustices that we'd already spent 200 years creating. To put it another way for me, too, you know, my parents, they put me in white schools. And from the beginning, they said, listen, that means that you are in a place that is not built for you to succeed. And so when you go about making your choices, be clear, you will have greater fall than your white peers if you make a mistake. These are things that were delivered to me time and time again, frankly, as I would screw up, <laughs> right? Like, that's not teaching me to be a victim. And these things inform right. my politics. That was teaching me to be clear-eyed about what you face and then go out and be individual Kairite. Well, you know, as I was listening to your, your story, Kai, I mean, I was thinking that in terms of what shaped my worldview, it would be my parents. I can't imagine being the same person without them. Are they still around? No, and have not been for some time, no. Uh -huh. Miss them every day. You know, my grandmother passed uh, two years ago. She is a towering figure in my life. And much of my politics uh, were shaped in her parlor. She sort of convened the world in that parlor. Uh, and people had conversations like these. And anyway, when my father died, which was, uh, I was 30 at the time, died a young man. He and my grandmother lived together at the time. And I would talk to them regularly on the phone. And I, I remember leaving her house after his funeral. And she says to me, she says, well, Kai, you got to still call. And, you know, I called some, but I didn't know where near enough. Well, you know what? I can so relate to you. My father also died uh, young. He died when he was 63, which is actually one of the reasons I retired from my radio show, because I figured mm -hmm. that, you know, I'm roughly his age now, never had a chance to say goodbye. Never had that last conversation. And those are the regrets that stay with you an awful lot, you know. 
in talking about our life experiences, what you're hearing is that we were taught to respect people and respect ourselves. And like, we can debate what is the best way to care for people. That's the kind of debate that both you and I want to have. Your point about respect, I think, is fundamental here. And this is something that I try to tell conservatives is, first of all, look, if you start the conversation basically going, I hate you, I want to deport your mother, and um, you know, I, I think you're less than human, would you like to hear my ideas about the flat tax? <laughs> well, you know what? No, people no, are not. No, on your side, <laughs> yes. if, if you say, hey, I think you're a bunch of redneck bigots, would you like to hear my idea about education reform? Well, no, because the conversation yeah. stops. I couldn't agree more. If, if you start with the base of respect, but that is one of the casualties of where we're at right now. You know, I respect your thoughtfulness, Charlie. I mean, you take your politics and your ideology in the world very seriously. And I've learned in the course of this conversation that's because it's rooted in this respect for other people. Well, I'm going to mirror some of that back. The story that you're telling about the values you got from your parents and the struggles that you've gone through. I mean, this is very, very real. It's not just a series of political declarations, you know. And I do think that, you know, that that sort of passionate engagement of your own personal experience makes it impossible not to pay attention to what you're saying. And I think back on my life, and I think that Perhaps I've approached politics and some of these issues maybe too intellectually, too abstractly, as opposed to cutting through all of it and, and saying, look, we're talking about real human beings. Maybe we're asking the wrong questions. So I'm grateful to you for this dialogue. Our indivisible hosts, Kai Wright and Charlie Sykes, in a StoryCorps conversation recorded earlier today. Now, to have your own indivisible StoryCorps experience, just email listen at storycorps.org with the subject line, Indivisible Interview, and describe who you think is your political opposite. We'll give you instructions from there, and we'll tell you how again later in the hour. Coming up after the break, Kai and Charlie join us live, along with StoryCorps founder David Isay, and listeners will open the phones for anyone to continue the conversation that Kai and Charlie were having there. A couple of things you might want to pick up on. Kai said, as a black man, his politics came from experience, not ideology. His parents couldn't go to the bathroom where Charlie's parents could, and that helped to form him. What in your life, from any background, makes politics personal for you? 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255. And when they were growing up, they heard Martin Luther King's line about seeing the content of your character very differently. Wasn't that interesting? Charlie thought it wasn't about race. Kai thought it was. Have you ever had a rev revelation about how you and someone else heard the same earnest statement differently? 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255, 844-745-TALK. Answer those questions or react to anything and continue the conversation that Kai and Charlie started as we bring them on live with Dave Isay from StoryCorps, right after this on Indivisible. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com indivisible.
This is Indivisible. The number to call is 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. And I'm Brian Lehrer from WNYC in New York. And joining us live now are our Monday night Indivisible host, Kai Wright, and our Wednesday night Indivisible host, Charlie Sykes. So if any of you out there thought we really didn't have different hosts, we were really just the same person changing our voice every night, just look at our Facebook live feed and you will see proof that we are actually three separate people. And StoryCorps founder, Dave Isay. Hello to all of you. Charlie and Kai, that was an amazing and genuine exchange. Has anything in particular stayed with you since the recording session that you might want to follow up on or that might inspire the listeners to have, you know, indivisible meet StoryCorps dialogues of their own? Kai? I I think some of Charlie's childhood and background has stuck with me, Um, you know, uh, and this sort of this whole recovering liberal (laughs) business uh, that Charlie talks about and, you know, and, and, and just that change. Um, from uh, both for both for your parents, Charlie, and for you, um, from folks who were sort of rooted in a in a in a capital L liberal um, civil rights movement, and deciding that that was hurting rather than or parts of it were hurting rather than helping the goals you were trying to reach, uh, I thought was was an interesting shift, and it, it's given me thought. Charlie, pick up on that or something that stuck with you? I actually thought that some of the most interesting uh, part of the conversation was we had nothing to do with politics whatsoever. Um, we talked about sort of our regrets and everything, and, and it's interesting that, that uh, Kai and I have had very, very parallel ex- experiences of, of looking back at certain relationships that we've had, uh, you know, people that, uh, that that perhaps we didn't pay as much attention to. And I, would, uh, I, I asked him, I said, do you have any regrets? And, and he talked about, you know, not calling his grandmother. You know, Heard and, that. And as somebody who's you know, did not have a chance to say goodbye to my father or my mother because they, they died so, so, so quickly, it was interesting how powerful that kind of moment is. And it's one of those things where you step away from the politics and all the social debate and everything, and you realize, you know— <laughs> We, we really have a, have a really fundamentally shared experience. Well, and also the things that are going to stay with you, you know, the things that are really truly going to matter to you as time unfolds uh, are uh, are not your your ideological beliefs, but they're your relationships. Yeah. So, Dave, I say yeah. this format is your creation, but it's not usually defined by people across the political divide. What was this like for you? And to pick up on what Kai and Charlie were just saying, can that kind of human connection that's made around the personal stories actually lead to bridging the political divide in any large-scale way if a lot of Americans were to do this? Well, Kai and Charlie are um, cutting new ground for StoryCorps because it's probably the third interview that we've ever done out of like 400,000 people who participated that are like this across the divides. I think what... um, what what Charlie said about this idea of looking at people across the divide as less than human is like the crux of, of like everything that's going on in this country and kind of why we're headed towards this mutually assured destruction if we don't fix things. I think that um, I just heard this for the first time as we were listening together. It happened this morning. But I do think that this idea of talking about the personal as opposed to um, kind of going into political issues is how you build a little bit of social capital so that you know, so that we can have some sort of relationship with each other when we come to more difficult issues. So it sounded it sounded great to me, and hopefully this is you know number three of of, of hundreds and then thousands and then hundreds of thousands of conversations where we kind of get to know each other as people and recognize that people across the divide 
aren't less than human. So listeners, again, if you want to do something like this yourself, just email listen at storycorps.org. That's the email address, listen at storycorps.org, with a subject line, indivisible interview, and describe who you think is your political opposite. And it can be somebody you know, or you can just sort of sign up uh, to be paired with somebody. And, you know, no obligation. There'll be a process. And then if you actually want to go through with it, you can go through with it. Email listen at storycorps.org if you want to initiate that process for yourself. Um, Dave, let me stay, stay with you for a second. You had a StoryCorps moderator helping Charlie and Kai you know, these guys, they're used to opening up, and they didn't need much help. But did he come with a specific question set that would also be available to listeners who want to do one of these interviews but don't know where to start? Yeah, Mike acted as a facilitator. And in the, the interviews we do face-to-face, many of those happen with a facilitator present. If you use the app, there's no facilitator there. What we're doing with these guys and with the with the indivisible listeners are figuring out what that question list should look like. So we're um, iterating on, on what we think the best questions are. People can ask whatever they want to ask. And I have a feeling, because I just talked to Mike right before we came in, that we're probably going to push people towards more um, you know personal questions and going in that direction as we do this, but we're going to keep experimenting. Again, the listeners of Indivisible are are guinea pigs here on this kind of unnamed project. And the question sets or some list of suggested questions will at least be available yes, to you, people if they sign up to do it on the app and you want right to come from in, their homes. And you want to come in prepared. James in Chicago, as we begin to fold in some callers who've been listening in on this. Hi, James. You're on Indivisible. Hey, good good evening, uh, gentlemen. Um, first time listener. Really love the angles of the conversation. Um, one of you gentlemen was talking about uh, how you basically got your political uh, acumen and why you know why you think the way you do, and it's more from life. And I kind of feel the same. Uh, me growing up in Louisiana, uh, Southern Louisiana, Baton Rouge specifically, having access to pretty poor resources in terms of education and other things. I mean, to now being in Chicago. Um, and going to one of the top tier universities in the country, I'm just I'm just kind of seeing like like that gap. And and if I could go back and reach out to people like me, I would always fight for something like equal resources, like the the amount of resources that I have now, um, being in Chicago versus when I were in Baton Rouge. Like you know, very nice libraries and lots of uh, people who've done exactly what I want to do and have these big ideas versus you know again being in Baton Rouge um, where you know, people, uh, they have uh, poor resources like libraries and schools and things like that. It, it's just, I, I kind of, now I'm, I would always focus my fight on something like that, uh, equal resources. And it kind of goes back to what the other gentleman was saying about how he got his ideas from his, his mom and dad not even being able to um, yeah. attend, you know, James, can, it, can, right? can yeah, I ask no? you what the political dialogues are like at the University of Chicago right now? It's a school with a certain uh, uh, conservative streak, to be sure, but also a lot of progressives. Oh, did I did I tell you what school it was? I thought you said University <laughs> of Chicago. Did you not? Well, uh, I'm not going to say, but I, I'm, I'm <laughs> I might as well. Yeah, University of Chicago. That that's the school. Um, I mean, we we're. We're still kind of getting over all the all the changes. It's it's just very vast, and um, I mean, obviously, this is Ob- this is Obama town, so mm-hmm. we're always on the side of that. And we all have we all have very strong criticism for Trump, even at University of Chicago. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, we just 
we're just trying to adjust all the changes. We're pretty nervous about our president because of kind of how um, how unpredictable he is, I would say. James, thank you very much for chiming in. We really appreciate it. Let's go next to Linda in Dayton. Hi, Linda. You're on Indivisible. Hi. Thank you. I, I love this show. I listen to it all the time. Thank, thank you, you very much. And did you listen to the dialogue, exchange, to the, uh, dialogue excerpt? Yes, I did. I did. Yes. So what did that um, spark just, in you? Go ahead. Oh, I, you know, just where our ideologies are formed based on our upbringing. I was raised in Whittier, California, um, during Nixon's presidency. My mom actually worked for Nixon's first employer. Uh, Nixon was a big part of our life in Whittier, and my family was ultra-conservative, very much to the right. And in 1980, I was old enough to register to vote, and I came home and I announced that I was going to register as a Democrat and vote in the presidential election. And my dad at the dinner table said, not while you live in my house, you won't. And I moved out um, that summer, and I actually never went back. And it it was so shaped. Uh, I have childhood memories of sitting at the country club with my family and my grandparents complaining about how difficult it is to be rich and white in the United States. Did Um, did you say that you never went back, meaning you never... Had a relationship with I, your father again no, after I, I, that? I, I did have a relationship. It was always an interesting one, but I left and I moved from Los Angeles to the East Coast. Um, I became a city planner, which tends to be a bit more on the, the left end of the spectrum. And um, we only ever would talk about football. Um, <laughs> is, he, <laughs> is he still alive, may I ask? Unfortunately, he's not. I would love to hear what he um, what he thought of what was happening in, yeah. in our world and our politics today. Um, many years later, when I was in Virginia, and I apologize, I forget his name. Um, the Iran Contra affair, and Oliver Oliver North was running for Senate in the state of Virginia. My dad, that was too far for him, and he called me up and he said. Well, what are you going to do? You can't possibly vote for him. He's a Republican, but you, you can't vote for him. And I said, Dad, I'm going to do what I've been doing for 20 years. I'm going to vote as a Democrat. All right. And that was probably the last political discussion we had. That's, that's sad. Linda, thank, thank you very much for chiming in. Um, Kai, you said elsewhere in the interview, not the excerpt that we played, that you were reluctant to participate in Indivisible at all right after the election because the idea of making nice with Trump voters didn't necessarily feel right. So if the dividing line is pro-Trump, anti-Trump, I bet a lot of people on either side feel like that. Can you elaborate? Did you feel it would somehow risk surrendering some of your rights or some of your dignity? Well, what, the point I had there, and I think, you know, I can't speak to, to the caller's uh, experience when she chose to, to shut off that part of her life to her family. But for a lot of us, myself included, the the necessary debates of democracy, the debating over, over, over what do we want, want to do as a society, too often involves debating our own humanity. Um, I'm a black gay man. Uh, I have loved ones who are undocumented immigrants. Uh, and I have loved ones who are women who have been victims of sexual assault. And for any people in those, group of, group, those groups to, to debate how we handle those things is to debate our humanity. And so I think we have to, in projects like these, we have to acknowledge that, mm-hmm. that we don't all enter this conversation equally. Yeah. Charlie, the, yeah. the thing about that 
to me, and you're a conservative, but you've always been a never-Trump conservative, so we should put that out there again and say this is not about you. But after the things Trump said in the campaign about women and Mexicans and Muslims and black people and feigning ignorance of David Duke, you can understand the feeling of betrayal that people have that Kai was just articulating about anybody who didn't find those things disqualifying. Well, I, I, I certainly felt that way as well, including, you know, as somebody, you know, who has been a conservative to watch people who I had been allied with going along with that. That was that, that was shocking. You know, and, and I want to go back to this 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 lar- larger theme, though. I mean, I, I think, you know, two things that are going on in American politics that I think are dangerous. We know number one is the incredible polarization uh, in, in our politics, but also the demonization of, of people who if you decide that if somebody becomes, you know, moves from right to left or from left to right, that they have become a bad person. And, uh, you know, Kai and I were talking about this earlier. I used to describe myself as a recovering liberal. And I remember all of the you know, the friends that I lost and the people who decided that I had become an awful person because I was voting for different candidates. You know, th- this is part of, you know, I don't know how you unwind this to be able to actually talk about the issue. We have different views about education. We have different views about, you know, society and about, you know, uh, uh, about, you know, personal responsibility, whatever. But, you know, if, if, you, if, you, if, if you demonize the other person, if you decide that you are a bad person or you sever relationships, I mean, think about it. I mean, I've lost friendships. I never lost, you know, a, a friendship with, with my parents or something. I mean, that's the moment where you step back and you go, you know, maybe our politics have become too important to us. Maybe electoral politics has become too toxic for us. You just can't flatten the conversation is the problem, right? Yeah. Like, so there are some things, tax policy, you know, where like, listen, we ought to be able to have reasonable discussions about yeah. that. And, you know, and, and the fact that someone's a Republican and someone's a Democrat ought to not split up a family. Uh, so, so the, but, but, but all the politics are not the same. Oh, I, I agree. And, don't, and, don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, there, there are people who've taken positions that, that I will, will, will say only semi-seriously that, you know, they are dead to me. And, and because for, of this, for, for reasons. For exactly, yeah. And for yeah. a good yeah. number of yeah. people... Saying yeah. someone is dead to me is about saying I have to protect myself. So what are the national implications of that, Kai? Accepting that as genuine and meaningful and and real and like logical. Like, of course, if you're not embracing my basic humanity as a starting point, uh, then I can't talk to you about tax policy. Then, you know, considering the election we've been through... Where does that leave us? Well, I think two important things. One, the election made it very, very clear, uh, and Christina Greer was talking about this earlier, uh, that I'm not going to debate whether or not my relationship to my partner is just, but those people out there who believe that my relationship is just and aren't in that same suit, it's on you to go have this conversation with your family and your friends who don't believe that. Um, it's time. You, you People are going to have to pick a side and step up and talk to their family about things that they're safe. People who are safe to have the debate, they need to have it. And the second thing I'd say is we have a, you know, this is all based, we're saying we have a communication problem, but we also have a democracy problem. And, and you know, because we did, in fact, have a majority of voters who disagreed with Trump's viewpoint. Meaning the three million more who voted for Hillary Clinton. Correct. You know that was voter fraud. No, I'm kidding. Uh, Justine in Queens. You're on Indivisible. Hello, Justine. Yes, good evening. Thank you for taking my call. I um, Something Kai said really resonated with me when he said that um, his parents couldn't go to the bathroom in some of the places that the other gentlemen's parents could have. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, back in the days before the Civil Rights Movement. 
And where I could go to the bathroom has also shaped my politics. <laughs> you see, I'm a transgender woman. So, you know, I mean, you've heard about what's happened in North Carolina and in other places. Um, so, and being a transgender woman um, has changed my politics. I've actually moved more to the left as I've gotten older. Um, I'm 58 now, but I used to be a libertarian and I used to vote Republican. And there are still areas where I agree with them. Like, I, I think some of the most cogent arguments against the war, against the invasion of Iraq, and against war generally have come from libertarians. And even though, you know, I support civil rights legislation, and I think certain programs are necessary, I don't think all by themselves they're going to help us, they're, or, you know, and they're not going to help other people um, who've been oppressed, who've, been, who've experienced prejudice. So... So on that, looking forward, Justine, guess what? You get the last word in the show for tonight. Now, listeners, again, here's how to have your own Indivisible StoryCorps experience. Just email listen at storycorps.org with the subject line Indivisible Interview and describe who you think is your political opposite. You can come as a pair. We've had lots of parents and adult children sign up. Or you can volunteer to have a dialogue with someone politically and geographically different from you who you don't know. StoryCorps will try to match you up and facilitate a conversation. So for whatever reason, I'm going to tell you this right now, it's only liberals who have volunteered for that. Uh, So courageous conservatives, come on into the pool. You can do this from your own home on our app. It's affirmative action for conservatives. Join our Indivisible Meet StoryCorps experience with someone politically different from you. Just email listen at storycorps.org with the subject line Indivisible Interview and describe who you think is your political opposite. Kai Wright, Charlie Sykes, David Isay, thank you all so much. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. And tomorrow night on Indivisible, with all the Syria and North Korea news, Charlie Sykes will be back on his own show to talk military policy with Tom Nichols, a professor of national security affairs at the U.S. Naval War College. He's also the author of a new book called The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. That's tomorrow night on Indivisible. I'm Brian Lehrer. Talk to you next Tuesday. Support for Indivisible is provided in part by Emerson Collective, the Ford Foundation, and the Jacob and Valeria Langloff Foundation. If you like the Indivisible podcast, rate and review it and tell your friends. And thanks for listening.